Hello, this is Dr. Amy Pigian, and today we'll be mapping the biology of trauma on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Amy Apigian. Dr. Amy is a double board certified medical physician, boarded in both preventative and addiction medicine, and holds double master's degrees in biochemistry and in public health. She is the leading medical expert on stored trauma in the body and addressing the biology of trauma. She specializes in trauma, attachment, and addictions after having personal experience in foster parenting, adopting, and then having her own health issues that were a result of childhood and life experiences. In addition to her medical studies that have included functional medicine certification, she has sought out trauma therapy training since 2015. She is currently the founder and CEO of Trauma Healing Accelerated, where she bridges the two worlds of functional medicine and trauma therapy with a mission to help adults accelerate the healing journey by addressing the biology of trauma that keeps stored trauma stuck in the body, mind, and spirit. Her provider certification course, which we'll link in the show notes, teaches providers to do the same for their clients. Dr. Amy, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Ah, thank you, Angie. It's good to be here. I really appreciate the ways in which you not just combine, but really clinically hold the realities of trauma, neurobiology, attachment disorders, stress, and inflammatory illnesses and addictions. And it's a lot to ask you to identify the web of interconnections between those areas of focus. So maybe you can start us off, Dr. Amy, with the story of what woke you up to those connections. <laughs> oh, you mean that story? I was on the path towards a very conventional medical career. And I was very heavy into the sciences. In fact, you know, I have a master's in biochemistry. And I was actually headed towards a research scientist type of career. At least that's what I thought. And then it was actually during medical school. And I did medical school at Loma Linda University. And I was just finishing up my master's in biochemistry, and I started foster parenting. And it's a whole process, but they eventually placed a boy with me, and his name was Miguel, and he was four years old. And I ended up adopting him. And for me, like that is definitely what I go back to as I am so 
grateful for what a life-changing experience that was because I tried everything that I knew, all of the tools that I had at that time. I went into it knowing that I knew exactly how to help him. And so when nothing that I was doing seemed to be helping and he was getting worse in his behaviors, then it forced me to open up and start looking for answers outside of what I knew. And it's definitely what has changed my life. And what ended up happening, Andrea, is I started seeing those patterns in myself and in other people. Not to say that they were as extreme as his, but I'm like, oh, like for him, it was just so obvious his fear of relationships, his fear of love, his fear of being known, of truly being known. And it was in such an extreme degree that it actually helped me recognize it and see it for what it was. And then I could see degrees of that in myself and degrees of that in other people. And then, of course, I'm starting to see patients. And at that time, I was up, up in your neck of the woods, up in Portland, at the Oregon Health Sciences University and was doing my general surgery residency there. And I started seeing all of this in my patients. And it was just fascinating to me to then start to make the connection of, wait a second, I know that these are belief systems and emotions and what many people would consider psychology, but no, like I am seeing that this has become their biology and it needs to be addressed if we're going to experience the most amount of healing that they can in their life. Yeah, this topic is so important to me as a functional medicine nutritionist. For me, there's so much embedded in the story, what brought us here that has impacted our physiological function. So I'm wondering if you are able to define what you think of as the biology of trauma. What does that mean to you? I break it into two categories. And the two categories are, Andrea, there's actually biology that will predispose someone to trauma in their lifetime. This is not something that we talk about at all. This is certainly not something that we are aware of, probably because we haven't known that there are things that we can do about it. But there is actually biology factors that will predispose us to experiencing trauma in our life. And then once trauma has happened... Trauma, by definition of of what trauma is, it has consequences on our biology, on our physiology. If it does not have those consequences, then it wasn't a trauma. It was just a stress. By definition, trauma has these lasting effects on our body. And so then we can look at the biology that happens as a consequence of trauma And whether we're talking about the biology that predisposed us to having that trauma or the biology that happens after we've had that trauma, now that same biology is what's keeping us stuck. And literally our nervous system, in order for it to change and rewire and renegotiate these things that may have happened in our past, it has to have positive neuroplastic ability. And it cannot have that positive neuroplastic ability with these biology changes that have gotten us stuck from trauma. Yeah, so well said. And one of my questions for you, Dr. Amy, was about those predisposing factors. One of the things that really fascinates me and you both, you know, epigenetic factors, but I really am interested in the epigenetics that we're born with, what lineage we come with, because 
it's constantly changing and continuing to change, right? Like it's continuing on what we're passing on that become predisposing factors. Can you talk a little bit about how you classify predisposition and how that relates to trauma a bit? Yeah. And I love that you're talking about epigenetics because that is one of the biology factors that will predispose us to trauma. And there is the methylation imbalances. And methylation is so much of of that epigenetics. But then I would also love to share briefly about what causes those methylation imbalances and epigenetic triggers. But just looking at methylation, methylation is one of those things that has been shifting in our society likely due to many factors, but over the last several decades, there has been more of a shift towards under-methylation than over-methylation. And what that will result in are changes in the neurotransmitters, for one thing. So people who are under-methylators have lower serotonin activity, lower dopamine activity. And just with those two things, Andrea, like we could just stop right there. (laughs) And we could say, like, just being born with lower serotonin activity and lower dopamine activity, you are predisposed to experiencing not only trauma, but attachment trauma, because both of those are required for healthy attachment to develop between you and your mom and your caregiver. And so if you are born with lower levels of serotonin activity and dopamine activity, it is going to be harder for your nervous system to be available for that healthy attachment to occur. Most people think of attachment as only from the caregiver side and what did you do or not do that made your kids have insecure (laughs) attachment styles. And yet for that attachment to happen, both nervous systems need to be available. And undermethylation and these neurotransmitter levels are just one of those ways in which a child's and infant's nervous system may not be as available for that healthy attachment. I'm glad to say that we have a two-part episode on methylation with a functional genomicist. We also have episodes on serotonin and oxytocin. I would like to have one on dopamine, but we don't yet have that. But that allows us to dive a little bit deeper in there. But when you talk about attachment disorders, I'd love us to kind of double-click on that. What does that mean? And is that something that's occurring in those early stages of life? Or is there even something that's predisposing before birth to attachment disorders? I was actually looking at this last night. I was looking at what are the latest statistics on attachment and insecure attachment? And it said that, you know, 40% of children are said to have an insecure attachment style. And I'm sorry, but that is bullshit. That is just simply wrong. When you look at the nervous systems around the world and you see the attachment pattern and how it shows up in their life, I would say 90% of people have an insecure attachment style coming out of their childhood. It does not mean that anything is wrong. It does not mean that that's bad. It is what it is. But being able to recognize that we have that just allows us so many more tools that we can use to help ourselves. So let's really clear up the fact that, oh, this is something that is one that is bad and one that, you know, less than 50% of the population has. So attachment is one of these things that forms our nervous system. It actually becomes our nervous system, becomes our biology. And there are three biology types of attachment. 
One would be this kind of anxious, what would be classified as the anxious attachment. And it's where like you cannot let go. You are so afraid of being alone that you cannot let go of needing somebody. And there, of course, is all kinds of stuff that a person may do as a result of feeling that way inside. And I really want to stress the point that attachment becomes your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system, not just your brain. So you can have thoughts that are not consistent with what your body ends up doing. And I know many people can relate to that where we want to do one thing and we end up doing the very thing that we wish that we would not do. And that's in relationships, right? Like, I'm not going to call him. I'm not going to call him. I'm not going to call him. And next thing you know, you're calling him. We want to look at those things. We don't just want to look at thoughts, but actually the end result in terms of actions and behaviors. And that informs us so much about what is truly the underlying drive and need that's trying to be met. You can have the healthy, right? And the healthy is one in which there is curiosity and there's openness. It feels safe. It feels secure. It even feels safe and secure in vulnerability, in intimacy, I should Mm -hmm. say. There is no fear. And if that is what some people can recognize and resonate with, awesome. Then you are one of those few that truly has a secure attachment style. If you are like the rest of us, you have to fight for that. (laughs) You have to work for that. (laughs) And it can be accomplished. It can be accomplished, but it's not necessarily what was natural for us in our life. And so the other biology type of attachment is this pattern of letting go, where it's almost like we expect to be rejected, and so we don't even invest ourselves fully because we're already guarding. We are the ones that are kind of not there. And so the three types are you're holding on so tight, like you are holding on, and then there's the... I can be open, I can be curious, I feel safe, I feel secure. And then there's this other type of, I'm letting go. I'm already guarding. I'm constantly guarded. So knowing that these are the biology types, then we look at, well, what can predispose you for that? And I guarantee you, Andrea, that if you have a nervous system that has a neurotoxin, even if that happened in utero, and say your mom was very stressed when she was pregnant with you, and she had adult levels of cortisol (laughs) in her blood, high adult levels of cortisol that would have crossed over the placenta. And so here is this very small fetus with overwhelming levels of adult levels of cortisol. That's a neurotoxin. And so it already starts the nervous system being formed in a way that is more sensitive, that is more reactive that is already on guard, that's already anxious and already looking out for, oh, the world feels dangerous. What may happen next? And that's just cortisol, right? Because then we can also look at this methylation. This is so much of how generational trauma gets passed on is through this methylation and these epigenetics. And the undermethylation almost communicates, you know, this need for survival. And that's why it's becoming more and more common in our society for undermethylators is because there are so many exposures in our world today that are neurotoxins, that our nervous systems have literally moved to constantly feeling like they are under attack. <laughs> and so we may not be living in a war. Obviously, some of us are. But for those of yes. us who may not have been, 
our nervous system still feels constantly under attack as if it were constantly in a war between the chemicals just in our food, between the chemicals in the air, between the chemicals in our makeup. Like there's just so many things that are literally attacking our nervous system and our neurotoxins. And so it moves our nervous system into this state of survival and having to fight for its survival. And those are the kinds of things that can be passed on through these methylation and these epigenetics that become how we pass trauma on to our next generation. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that generational trauma. You know, we have to look back when we're understanding who we are and how we got here to those antecedents. And when we think about marginalized populations for any reason, how that's impacting the entire nervous system. And then as you're pointing out, so many other aspects of the full body systems, our neurohormones, our hormones, our immune and inflammatory imbalances, and all of it working together like a big pot that's impacted by these factors that have fed the ways we methylate, but also the ways we practice resilience, the ways we are able to be resilient, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Able to be resilient. I mean, you nailed it right there. There are these biology factors, and I call it cellular resilience. And if Mm. you don't have cellular resilience, you are not going to have emotional resilience. It's impossible because whatever we are experiencing as emotions is happening on the physiology, on the biology level of the nervous system. So, so much of what I do with the biology of trauma is building that capacity of your nervous system. That is what allows us to be resilient. When we have more capacity for stress, to hold stress and not just crumble with stress, (laughs) right? When we are building this capacity of our nervous system to hold stress and it not become overwhelming and crush us, then that is when we are able to be resilient no matter what is happening in our life or in the world. And until we build that capacity, and this is done very intentionally, until we build that capacity, stress, just stress, will continue to be overwhelming to us and be traumas for us. So I know we don't have time to go into all the how-tos, and they're very individualized, but Dr. Amy, if you are looking at the right side of the functional nutrition matrix, what we like to think of as the core basics, is there anything that we, at least as functional nutrition counselors, could be doing to support patients who are, let's say, working with you and maybe not seeing you every single day, like we might actually be working with them, not every day, but checking in with them once a week. What should we be focused on that helps set the stage for the type of healing that you're working on in practice? When I look at that right side of the matrix, it's all of it. This is where we really get to see how beautiful the human body is in its design because everything from the sleep, exercise, and I focus more on movement, right? That's mentioned there rather than exercise because a person can have so much stored trauma that they're not able to exercise without causing a crash. So movement, sleep, movement, nutrition, and then of course, like the stress levels in their life and then their sense of being connected 
and their network. That is all crucial. And how do we create a felt sense of safety? How do we create a felt sense of support? What I would just want to encourage your practitioners is just how interconnected those are with the body work and some of the, what I call the somatic trauma therapy work that we can do. Because when you do those things, your sleep is going to improve. You're going to be able to be in more movement and not have that be more than what your capacity is. The nutrition is a huge piece. There are so many digestive issues that come as a result of both the biology that predisposes one to trauma, but then the consequences of trauma. And so even just looking at all of the food sensitivities, the gut inflammation, the bile flow, the liver detoxification, the gut motility, you create a deficiency for your system and you have now put it into a stress mode. And if your cells are stressed, it really doesn't matter. I mean, it, it does matter in terms of like, how's your relationship network? Because having a great relationship network will help buffer a functional deficiency of a nutrient, but only for a time. And if you don't have a relationship network, but you are addressing the biology deficiencies, you're going to be able to tolerate not having that relationship network for longer than if you had those deficiencies because it all plays together. It all comes together in the nervous system to determine day by day and sometimes hour by hour (laughs) your capacity at that time to hold stress. And any time that that capacity has been exceeded and you have now given your system more stress in all of these different areas combined than what your system can handle, you have just created a new trauma for your body. And that trauma, like, again, can come from the lack of sleep. It can come from the lack of nutrition. Like, these need to be considered traumas for your body when we have created so much stress on our system that we have exceeded our capacity to hold that stress in that moment. Yeah, so beautifully said. And you really spoke into today the mantra of this podcast, which is that everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. And when we're thinking about trauma, understanding the biological impact is really crucial. And I'm sure everybody's going to want to continue the conversation with you, Dr. Amy. We will link to all your information in the show notes. I just want to thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. You articulate these connections really beautifully. Ah, Well, thank you for the work that you're doing in the world, Andrea. It's really important. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. 
We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review, and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.